Hello, fellow innovators. This is Patrick Emmons. And this is Shelly Nelson. Welcome to the Innovation and the Digital Enterprise Podcast, where we interview successful visionaries and leaders, giving you an insight into how they drive and support innovation within their organizations. Today, we're welcoming Amanda Blevins to the show. Amanda is Vice President and Chief Technology Officer for the Americas at VMware. She joined VMware as a Senior Systems Engineer in 2010, and just a few years later, And just a few years later, she became VMware's first female principal systems engineer. Now she is VMware's first and only female chief technologist. She leverages leverages her experience and network to drive awareness and equality for women and all underrepresented people in technology fields. She is passionate about innovation and enabling cross-functional teams to be successful in their creative efforts. Her areas of focus are cloud, edge, and emerging technologies. Amanda has over 25 years of experience in various infrastructure, various infrastructure operations and architectural roles. Welcome to the show, Amanda. Oh, thanks so much. It's great to be here, Patrick and Shelley. Amanda, if you don't mind, can you tell us a little bit more about VMware and your role as VP and CTO of the Americas? Absolutely. So VMware has been around for uh, quite some time, since the late 90s. And a lot of folks know us as the virtualization company and and our our founders were the first folks to be able to uh, virtualize x86 processors, even when Intel said it couldn't be done. There's lots Mm -hmm. of cool stories there, but I don't think we have time for them. Maybe maybe another show. (laughs) Um, And so uh, I was a a sysadmin and a technical architect and enterprise architect and started using VMware technology, oh, a long time ago. you know, maybe 20 years ago or so, maybe a little bit less. And uh, I just fell in love with it, you know, being able to virtualize and vMotion and all those things, especially a couple decades ago was, you know, like magic. And not only did I really enjoy the technology, but I also enjoyed all the folks at the company and the culture, whether it was the account team I was working with or if I had to call into support, everyone was always so helpful. And I had the opportunity to uh, join VMware um, almost 13 years ago now, when uh, my account SE called me up and said, hey, I'm taking another job inside VMware. Do you want mine? And I was like, yes. Wow. Uh, so I went through the interview process. And a few weeks later, I was a, a VMware employee. And I've never been on the sales side um, besides a very short stint selling home theater equipment because I wanted it at cost. Um, but I, <laughs> but I've never been on the sales side and, you know, technology, um, in, in this sense in it. And so I was a little nervous, uh, because I didn't want to be seen as not, you know, technically credible and, and things like that, but that worked out just fine. Um, so, you know, fast forward to today, VMware, we're a company that's about multi-cloud and we're, we're about, you know, helping you build and run your applications in the way that makes sense for your business. And we provide cloud platforms and automation and observability and security solutions. We partner with technology companies around the globe in all areas. And we also have a large focus on modern applications, being able to run them, secure them, and, and also to, uh, to create them. And so my job as the CTO for the Americas is to partner with um, our customers Uh, our partners, and be able to help solve their business problems with our solutions. And I also collaborate with the folks across R&D to influence product roadmap and innovation to make sure that what we're creating is going to fit the industry needs today and and tomorrow and the future. And also, I get to work on some special projects. Uh, Don't have a lot of time um, for many of them, but my current one 
that hopefully will be implemented this year is around open process automation and the edge. That's very cool. Uh, it's, I've also been very familiar with VMware for, for a long time. Uh, I remember when virtualization first came out because I used to actually have to build the boxes myself, right? And all of that nightmare that goes into it. Um, and it always kind of amazed me how virtualization happened like like a prairie fire. It was like, it was like, hey, we should kind of look at this. Oh, we all did it. Right. Where it was like, it was such a huge revolutionary idea of we, we don't need to create these and curate these individual boxes. And it's such an interesting uh, legacy into containers and that whole approach and, you know, really thinning down the actual operating system to just what you need. And, you know, that, that whole concept really was started there where, you know, the, the, when we start setting up servers, it's like, well, I have to get the biggest server I can get. Well, why? Well, because I, I'm only going to get one shot at the server. So I, I need to like overload it. So the idea that you could actually modify virtually, you know, it, it was such a transformative thing. And it, it took, I, I don't think I've ever seen technology get adopted as fast uh, and as wide as, as virtualization did. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And it, it certainly made my job a lot easier. You know, back in the day when I had to do server refresh of hundreds of physical machines, that was a lot of work. Uh, <laughs> server refresh when everything's virtualized is far, far easier. So uh, tell us, uh, I know when we spoke before, uh, you know, your career kicked off right about uh, 2000, 1999, yeah. that, that right there in the dot com, dot com craze. Right, right. Yeah. So, you know, when I was uh, even growing up, my dad, he has a PhD in electrical engineering. So there are just always computers in the house. And uh, I thought when I went to university that I would be um, a, bi a biologist, a geneticist, actually. Mm. Um, but I did not enjoy <laughs> those biology labs where I'd count red blood cells under a microscope. So I was like, I can't do this. Uh, but I knew that I wasn't a programmer like my dad was. And, and so I don't really know you know, at that time, you know, in the late 90s, there weren't, there wysn't education around being like an IT sysadmin and, and these other things. So I just kind of figured it out myself going to Linux user groups and, uh, you know, working at the university, uh, having, you know, a side job for, for spending money and things like that. And so once I left university, uh, my first role was at, um, at an internet service provider back when we had dial-up modems. Uh, so that will tell you about the time that that I entered the force there, the workforce for real. And um, shortly after that, I moved to an application service provider. Today, we'd call it a SaaS company, um, you know, be able to provide uh, shopping cart services. And, and that was about the time that the, the dot-com bubble happened. And so it was really jarring. Well, one, as a young person, you know, that just entered the workforce to, to be able to you know, create that stability in my life that that I needed to, um, but also to see, you know, the velocity of of technology and investments and spending, and then that really coming to a halt um, as folks and organizations were trying to figure out how to navigate that that dot com bubble. Is there any lessons learned from that time frame? Because I, I I was uh, relatively new. And I actually started my first company right before then, because in 99 with technology, you could pretty much do anything and get paid for it. It was really kind of an insane period of like, 
we sent bills to customers in some cases, and I'm not sure we really were providing a ton of value, but it was the internet and the internet was going to make money. So everybody needed to be doing the internet, whatever that meant. Uh, I think there's some really acute lessons that I learned during that time frame that have really shaped my career. Is there anything, you know, that early on kind of situation that's helped uh, create a perspective for you that you you kind of draw on from time to time as you're growing and, and leading other people? You know, that was um, the first and only time in my life, knock on wood, that I was riffed. Um, mm. And as a competitive person, as somebody who played a bunch of sports at a very high level growing up, you know, being cut from a team or being, you know, uh, removed from a company was uh, really heartbreaking. And I took it personally because I thought, it meant that I wasn't showing the the value that the company needed. Um, and maybe that was the case, or maybe it was just because I was one of the, the last people hired or, you know, some combination thereof. I don't know, you know, what the decision criteria was. Um, but, you know, I made a, a, a concerted effort since then to make sure that I've always aligned the work that I do and the things that I focus on and the technology that I learn and implement uh, to be of strategic importance to the company and to not necessarily be the one that just you know hugs the knowledge and doesn't share with anyone else to be a leader and to give other people opportunities to also you know be able to do these cool new things to be able to provide a lot of value to the company and over the years um i've spent time thinking about you know of course there's things like okrs or goal setting where you you know kind of have to measure your performance but it's a little different it's really thinking about what am i passionate about you know, what technology do I want to work with? What do I want to do? What kind of soft skills do I want to develop? Um, you know, what area of technology um, am I interested in? Are there certain industries I want to work with? And then making sure that what I'm passionate about, what I'm excited about also aligns to the company that I'm working for. Um, so, you know, there isn't that situation where if there is time for a riff that my name might be on the list because I'm not contributing to, you know, the revenue of the company. That's brilliant. I think that's that's really great advice for everybody. And I, I had a similar reaction of um, as engineers, sometimes um, I think we we believe we are valuable for what we do, right? Uh, inherently, right? And that because we are able to do these technology things and engineering things, uh, we're going to be valued. And the three letters that kind of were branded into my mind somewhere around 2002 is ROI. Yeah. Right? Like is what I'm doing, is it creating ROI? They're not going to pay me just because I'm smart and handsome. Um, and, you know, I am. So that worked out great for a <laughs> while, but we'll cut that part out. I just figured. But, <laughs> just throw that in there. <laughs> just throw that in there. But yeah, but I do think there's that, there's that component where you, you kind of come to the conclusion of like, I have to be aligned with the strategy. And I think that's really great insight. I think for a lot of uh, people new to the industry or concerned is that um, you've got to understand what it is the company does. Like you, you mentioned, uh, you know, uh, when it comes down to like, how does the, how does this company create value? Because if I can help them create value, then I can create value for myself. And then we're on the value side of, of things uh, as opposed to the, the cost side of things. And I, I think that's that's really great insight. And I think uh, specifically technology folks sometimes uh, don't really look at it from that perspective. So yeah. thank you for sharing that. 
Yeah. yeah. Think, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm just curious, Amanda, did that experience also change how you decided to manage others or how you led your teams going forward? Yeah, I think um, I think that experience um, not right away because I was so young. I was in my early 20s, so I wasn't like a mature human being yet. Um, and so I had to do uh, my own personal journey on the, the self-improvement side and, and all of those things. And when that happened um, in my early 30s, and I was a lot more comfortable being authentic and I was a lot more comfortable discussing like feelings, you know, like engineers were not so into that or people in general might not be so into that. And so when I was a lot more comfortable um, in my own skin and being myself and being able to share these things and these concerns or worries or, you know, my failures and successes and all these things that really changed um, how I interacted with people that really changed how I was able to be a good leader because I could be transparent in the fact of, hey, this is what I think you know we should be doing as a team. This is why I think we should be doing it. Um, if we don't do it, you know, these are the the things that won't happen for the company. These are the growth opportunities that that we won't have as individuals. Um, and then also, you know, be able to share with them, hey, you know, we're innovating, we're doing new things, we're doing things that have never you know, been done before. So there is risk of failure, and that's okay. So really be able to be a more supportive person, be able to connect with folks on the human level, as well as the technology level, um, you know, was something that happened after happened during and after and continues to happen, you know, after that personal journey, but taking all those experiences, even before I had that self awareness, um, certainly plays in like you mentioned. So going to pivot a little bit, and I think, thank you so much. That is really tremendous insight. I know we wanted to talk a little bit about um, the focus right now for you is, you know, move, you know, the the big move to, to multi-cloud, how people are leveraging these new technology platforms. Uh, and really, uh, it, it's, there's a lot of conversations around value when it comes to uh, how are we leveraging cloud. Um so if if you don't mind going a little bit deeper with us on that, um, you know, what is the business case, you know, for those who aren't aware of what that strategy is, you know, why is it something that you think people should be considering it? Uh, what is really some of the the advantages? Yeah, you know, this is it's so interesting how the industry has you know moved back and forth on on the promise of cloud or the value of cloud or or those other things, and in fact. Um, sometimes a lot of folks can't even agree on the definition of cloud. Uh, so I'll, I'll start with that just so we're all on the same page. And I like to use the NIST characteristics of cloud, the National Institute of Standards and Technology. So if you have you know, self-service, broad network access, rapid elasticity, resource pooling, and metering, you have a cloud environment. And so that means that you can build one out on-prem. You can have those characteristics at the edge. And a lot of people think I'm going to the cloud as, a, as if it's a location. Um, and generally, they do mean a public cloud, you know, service provider, which is completely valid. Uh, but you know, folks need to remember that a cloud is a set of functions and capabilities rather than you know a location, someone that you pay. Uh, so just think a cloud as your own data center, or somebody else's, but with those characteristics. 
And so a lot of companies said, hey, I'm going to move to public cloud because I can get velocity. I can move faster. I don't have to deploy the infrastructure and maintain it, install operating systems, install web servers and database servers, and then eventually do what I need to do for my business. And my developers can just start working right away with these native public cloud services, which I think is fantastic, right? Because that means we can innovate faster. But the problem is, um, it's a ton of new technology and nobody besides the companies that built it really have or had the expertise to be able to do it properly. And so um, what often happens in IT is where we implement a pilot and all of a sudden becomes production without us going through all that planning and implementation that we should have. That that happened with public cloud services as well. Oh, we're going to try it out here. Oh, by the way, now our marketing app is running up there, or now we're consuming a SaaS service. And there wasn't a lot of the architectural planning, the governance and compliance planning that needed to happen. And what occurred over the years, I would say, especially the last five years where a lot of companies started to use public cloud services, is it's now in disarray. You know, we call it cloud chaos at VMware, but there's lots of ways to refer to it. But essentially, it just means that people are running workloads in various clouds using various services and not seeing the value, like we were talking about before, that they thought that they would that they would have from public cloud. Um, you know, they're not seeing the ROI. They're not they're not meeting the KPIs of their projects that they had. Um, and the and the the tricky part about cloud is as soon as you move a workload to a public cloud provider and you're consuming a service, whether it is a, um, you know, an on-demand virtual machine or it is an S3 bucket or is, you know, SQL, you know, an Azure, whatever it might be, you're going to spend money. You're going to keep spending money. And as that grows, it's going to consume more resources. So you're going to spend more money. So now, even though folks are a bit paused on cloud, uh, on moving workloads to public cloud, they're still going to see a cost spent um, a cost and a spend increase just because uh, there aren't those governance and controls in place to make sure those workloads don't grow on their own. So we have the cloud chaos aspect of we're running workloads everywhere, we're using a bunch of services, but we haven't really architected a solid multi-cloud strategy and adhered to it. We have a lot of security concerns because of that. And even though we don't want to spend as much money this year, we're probably going to spend even more uh, in the public cloud because we haven't done this pre-work that we should have. It is definitely things that I've I've heard people talk about moving from one vendor to the other with the idea that that is going to reduce cost potentially. Um, but to your point of these, you know, workloads get pushed up there, and it's it's almost uh, uh, I forget the physics law of gas expands to fill the box, right? Yeah. Of like uh, it will keep expanding to fill whatever. And yeah. so, um, so are you seeing other things? Are, are people uh, moving off? Are they, are they retreating from the cloud or, or the public cloud? Forgive me. Right. Right. You know, the, it's been about a year and a half where I've been, where I've been having these conversations with the executives around where they'll say, you know, we've had this cloud strategy or multi-cloud strategy, and I'm not sure it's working. You know, we're not seeing the value we expected. We're not seeing the velocity that we wanted. We're not seeing the agile experience for our developers or app owners. And in that time, either, at least there's that pause happening where now folks can uh, think about how do I use cloud services intentionally? 
what might I build out on-prem? What might my edge architecture look like? What might my capabilities be? Do I want to have cloud services in my environment? Because I can always deliver them um, to be less expensive than public cloud if I do it well on-prem. That doesn't mean everybody you know, does right away, uh, but if you're efficient on-prem, it'll always be less expensive than public cloud. Um, because you're not paying for all those features and people and all the you know R&D that they put into to what they're providing you. And so because one of the um, KPIs that a lot of folks had of I'm going to move 80% of my workloads to public cloud, generally um, for those that had those types of goals and those percentages and numbers, um, companies are sitting around 10 to 15% of those targeted workloads running in public cloud. So that means the majority of their applications and data is probably still on-prem or in a colo agreement or you know however they run their IT department. And so what I would suggest to those companies and, and the direction that we're going is you've already spent two, five years, whatever it's been, re refactoring these workloads or going through the processes to migrate them to public cloud. And they're a small subset of what of of what you know your business uses to run on. Um, and the majority of your workloads are on-prem running in a legacy fashion without a private cloud or without automation or without you know, modularity and, and things like that. And so my suggestion to them isn't necessarily repatriation unless they're just not you know, having any benefits of, of public cloud and you can reduce spend by moving it back easily. But really it's to build out and to one, to set the strategy to set the rules, to be intentional about how cloud would be used. You know, we use private cloud for these types of workloads. We use Edge for this. We use Azure for this. We use AWS for this. And make sure that we're not making it too complex because we're technologists. You know, we like to do that as technologists. We want to play with the cool new things and that will get us into trouble. And that's what's happened over the years. And so set the strategy of being as, as simple as possible in the approach Try not to make the solutions too complex. Uh, that way you can secure it, operationalize it, et cetera. And then say, okay, I need to build out my private cloud. I need to provide those capabilities. I need to have a single operational model for on-prem and Azure and AWS and GCP. Um, or, you know, I don't want to use three public cloud providers. I'm going to have one private cloud and, and one public cloud provider. And so now folks are, are having that pause, being intentional about the strategy, and then working with their teams to create the architecture that's appropriate for the future, that can be secured, that isn't out of control, that does meet the compliance of the business and, and those other things. That's very interesting. It, it, I When I hear this, obviously the orchestration, the complexity, and obviously uh, first rule, first rule of leadership. Well, no, maybe not the first. One of the most important rules of leadership is simplify, right? Mm -hmm. um, so when I hear, and I, as an engineer, yes, I over architect, and as a a mature engineer, I'm aware of my desire to over architect. So whenever yeah. I start solution, it's like, uh, are you doing? Like, is this really the right one? Is yeah. this the one that makes you feel good about the design you put together? Like, yeah, one's really valuable here. But so uh, the simplicity, the orchestration. Uh, the using the right tool at the right place. Obviously, we're all dealing with some shortages when it comes to resources and and talent, um, and and I think there's a, a false sense because you bring up a great point at the beginning of when you look at any of the public clouds and all these services, the list is insane, right? Yeah. It is uh, as a person who's been certified on four or five things in my career. We look at it and like there's 50, 60, like nobody can be an expert in 
all of these things if they tried. So, you know, I, I know you've got some thoughts around uh, the talent constraints or the con- talent issues when it comes to to like managing this this multi-cloud, more of a, a hybrid, uh, you know, right-sizing and right-placing workloads based upon various constraints. So we'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, you know, I've, I've spoken with executives and, and one company comes to mind where we were in a meeting and they told me, well, our strategic direction is to run the majority of our workloads and business on GCP. And we have 400 open positions. And I said, well, <laughs> I didn't say this to them at that time, but I thought about it, you know, for a while, in addition to other conversations, you know, similar ones, maybe not, you know, at that scale of 400 open positions, but really executives saying, um, you know, I have these openings that I can't fill, or I need folks that know AWS, or I need folks that know Azure, et cetera, et cetera. And finally, I started asking the question of executives, does your available talent impact your strategy and the direction in which you're taking your IT department? Mm. And and that's important because if you plan to move everything to a public cloud provider and you have 400 open positions you need to fill to be successful at it, well, maybe that won't happen. So it's very difficult to get the talent that, that knows these advanced technologies and services. Like you mentioned, there's hundreds of them. And so nobody, like you said, nobody's going to be an expert in all of them. But to be able to obtain the talent that knows these things, well, those are those are high cost folks. You know, those are expensive people because of their capabilities. And then there's the uh, opportunity to improve the skills of the folks that are already inside your company. But sometimes what happens is after those folks get trained up and understand this, they get hired away. You know, by these other vendors or consultants that that maybe can pay more than than what your business can currently. And so. You know, in addition to keeping the solution, the architecture, and the strategy simple, just to reduce the complexity of the environment, be able to operationalize, and all those things we were just talking about, it's also important to keep in mind what your folks are capable of today, what they're capable of learning, and the amount of time that you're running this project or you're starting out with this project, and also the availability of talent to you. Because I believe that you know, obviously, this can't happen without people. The machines aren't doing all the work by themselves yet. Maybe with Chat GPT in a few years, it will. <laughs> <laughs> That's a joke. I don't actually believe that. No, I know. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I can't even know how. I can't figure out how it's going to like write an essay on its. Like, there's no way that's readable. <laughs> I don't know about factual, but you know, it sounds pretty good. But you know, there's there's still a lot of human work that has to go through this, and we have to to trust in our folks, and we have to make them successful. So we want to make them successful in a way um, that they don't feel like they're always behind, that they don't that they don't have that imposter syndrome of oh, my boss expects me to know 50 AWS services, I can barely you know have time to learn four. Um, so you know, really helping your folks get to where they need to be hiring um, appropriately when when you can find those folks, but making sure your solution isn't so complex that you can't even find the talent to to make it happen. That's a really great point. Shelly, looked like you were going to say something. No, I was going to say, well said. Yeah, that was excellent. Thank you. Yeah, I I, uh, I do think you touch on a really important issue that I think, you know, as, as engineers, uh, we don't uh, focus on the human capabilities we currently have. Uh, I see that in, a, in, a, in not just in the on the systems infrastructure side, but on, on the development side where we we hear a lot of people like, oh, we want to go with React over 
uh, Angular, and it's like uh, you know how few of them exist, and you know what they want from a financial standpoint. Like, is this really the right decision? Right? Like, well, it's it's the best technology. It's like okay, we could have that argument, right? Uh, but it, it it is a really important point of like, well, that's great, but from a strategic standpoint, are we going to exceed? Are we going to succeed on the strategic goals for the organization? And are we considering all of the potential, you know, uh, blockades, you know, uh, talent is only going to become a more critical point. So I think you touch on a, a very good point of like uh, these big moves and displacements, uh, you know, and I don't think everybody's got 400 open spots, but there's a lot of open spots. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think everybody who's in it or in technology understands the second you upskill your resources, there's a certain percentage that are going to be displaced by that, right? Mm-hmm. Either because they don't want to do it, right? And or, and that's okay. Uh, yeah. Or that they now have a new value proposition to the world and they're going to, and that's just, that's just how it is, right? So that's, that's just, and I think you bring up great points of like, I was talking to somebody the other day and they're like, oh, we're looking to grow by a hundred percent next year. And I'm like, Oh, so you need to add 150% of the people. <laughs> and they're like, no. And I'm like, Oh yes. <laughs> None of what you just said is going to be fun. Right. Like the, I think you, you, you got to take into consideration certain people are going to have a tolerance for these types of maneuvers. Yeah. Right. And I think that's, that's a great point. I think a, a lot of people when they get started on these, uh, these technology journeys, they don't really, consider that in their plans of uh, the displacement of, of existing folks and their ability to find the folks that they need. And it's, it's not 1982 anymore, right. When you could, you know, put out a job listing and be selective, right. You got to go out and recruit and you got to encourage. And, you know, it's, it's, you mentioned your sales experience and I, I'm going to, I'm going to assume that because you have sales experience is why you didn't say that thing to the customer that, you, you know, maybe you turn the clock back. I know us engineers, we have no problem with like telling people where they're wrong. Uh, <laughs> usually at the least appropriate times. Like, right. You know, right. It's a skill I've had to unlearn. It's really. <laughs> that was the whole personal development thing I was talking about. Before. It's great. It's tremendous. I, I think that's, I think uh, it, it's, I, I find it very interesting, you know, when, when engineers do get into sales and when they start to understand how that actually works. Right. As opposed to telling everybody what you think as quickly as possible. Right. Uh, but I also think it's it's great from like a, a leadership standpoint and from a, um, being valued, being valuable to the organization is like understanding what what other people want and then how to, you know, that's really one of those critical elements to be great as a leader. Right. Understanding what your people want, mm-hmm. what motivates them and and can you create a confluence of needs between the strategic plan of the company, the 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 needs, the professional needs of, of the individuals, or the, even the personal needs of the individuals, and that's engineering as well. And I think it's it's kind of fun engineering. Yeah, absolutely. as long as you don't over architect it. <laughs> I do love over architecting. I always have like three versions of backups and resiliency whenever I design something. <laughs> I was I just had that conversation with myself this morning, where it's like you know what you're doing, Pat. Like yeah, but just give me thirty minutes. Okay, just gonna run. Like I'm gonna come up with this beautiful, amazing thing that'll never work, right? Yeah. So, 
Awesome. Well, Amanda, I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, join us today. This was tremendous. Thank you for sharing your experience uh, uh, as a leader and how your career has grown. Uh, really a lot of great insight uh, on, you know, think about people in many different ways, not just, you know, I think there's too often a little bit focus on, on, you know, uh, the servant leadership and a little bit too much on the servile, servile leadership of like, and like, but what you're talking about is actually strategic alignment, uh, understanding people, understanding what they want to get done. Uh, but also understand we we've got to accomplish goals here and like yeah. to be a, a good leader, uh, is is part of creating that clarity of like this is what we need to do to be successful, um, as 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 discomforting as that might be for some folks, right? Know? It's so, definitely hard. <laughs> definitely is it is, but it's 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 obviously been uh, part of your success, and and you know we applaud you for everything that you've been able to accomplish with your career. Yeah, thank Thanks, you, Amanda. Thank you, Shelley. Thank you, Patrick. Awesome. Uh, we also wanted to thank you, our listeners. We really appreciate everyone taking the time to join us today. And if you'd like to receive new episodes as they're published, you can subscribe by visiting our website at dragonspears.com slash podcast, or find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was sponsored by Dragon Spears and produced by Dante32.